This is the IBJ podcast for the week of January 2nd, 2023, brought to you by Taft. I'm Leslie Weidenbenner in this week for the Vacationing Mason King. Today, we're turning the podcast over to IBJ reporter Dave Lindquist for an interview with Jeff Smullyan about his 2022 memoir, Never Ride a Roller Coaster Upside Down, The Ups, Downs, and Reinvention of an Entrepreneur. The book, which he wrote at his daughter's urging, caps a year of tremendous transition for Jeff Smullyan. The Emmis Communications founder, whose roster of former employees includes David Letterman, Mike Pence, Isaac Hayes, and Ken Griffey Jr., Emmis sold four Indianapolis radio stations, an Indianapolis Monthly magazine in 2022, ending the company's four-decade run as a media powerhouse. Although Emmis still owns two radio stations in New York City, the company is now focused on three assets it has in the fields of e-commerce, ergonomics, and corporate podcasting. The memoir is packed with startup dreamers, media magnets, and celebrities, and at one time or another, each role applied to Jeff. Dave talks with Jeff about his career, his successes, and some of his initiatives that didn't go so well, including Next Radio, a costly effort to make mobile phones act like smart, portable radios. Here's their conversation. I'm Indianapolis Business Journal reporter Dave Lindquist, and I'm happy to welcome to the IBJ podcast, Jeff Smullyan, founder and CEO of Emmis Incorporated and the author of new book, Never Ride a Roller Coaster Upside Down. The Ups, Downs, and Reinvention of an Entrepreneur. Hello, Jeff. Hi, Dave. How are you? I'm good. Uh, thanks for taking the time. I'm aware that your daughter encouraged you to write this book. It seems to line up chronologically to maybe when you, when you were deciding to get out of the radio and magazine business. Was there a final development or anecdote that convinced you that media companies are no longer a place for growth? Well, I think we saw it a long time ago. We really got into the next radio project because we thought radio had to regain its portability. What that experience taught us was that that was going to be tough because of the, of the nature of the, of the, really the content in the industry's zeal to sort of, you know, lever up, um, expand. Companies had so much inventory that, you know, they had so much debt that they had to decide, you know, how they were going to service the debt. And most of the big ones decided that they were going to do two things. They were going to cut localism, cut costs, and they were going to add inventory, add commercials. And I think the combination of loss of localism plus a lot of inventory, we saw in a lot of real-time data that it was, it was probably going to be an industry that wasn't going to be able to grow very much. Isn't it interesting how companies make decisions that are 180 degrees opposite of what the audience would like? Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, we learned a lot and I love the business. I really did. But we just said, look, we're we're not big enough to influence the outcome. And even if we were, we saw the big guys who had been in and out of bankruptcy and teetering on the verge of bankruptcy. And we said, you know, this is probably not the best place for us to allocate our resources anymore. And it broke my heart because I love the business, Dave. I understand. Well, let's uh, back up. You mentioned Next Radio. For people who aren't aware, that was a concept that, you know, radio can live in the device where 99% of the people spend 99% of their time, right? Right. I was very proud of Next Radio. It was, I got drafted to sort of organize the industry effort a number of years ago, fell in love with it when the NAB said it's more than just turning on these chips. You've got to have a visual 
uh, product. Uh, our people developed it, Paul Brenner and his team. Um, I was very proud of it. We got launched in a lot of places, not only on all the carriers here, um, but but in uh, in Mexico and Canada and Argentina and Brazil and Peru and South Korea. So we got a lot of exposure. But what we found was it was it was going to take a lot more than a small company like ours to really solve this problem. And some of the cell phone carriers who adopted it were was it T-Mobile? We, well, we actually got T. We got all four of the, of the carriers. We didn't. Ne- we never got Apple, but we got T-Mobile, AT and T, Verizon, and Sprint at that point. So we had them all, and we thought ultimately we'd get Apple. But it also we were spending a lot of money, and we really went to the industry and said, "Guys, you got to help do this." And because of the debt levels of the industry, it really became problematic. You had so many companies that were barely clinging to life, and we just said, "Look." By that time, we had already sold some things, and and so we just said, look, we love the business, but it's time for us to think about other things. Well, as we await a uh, winter storm, I like to think about baseball. In the 1990s, you won the Seattle Mariners. What was the most memorable part of that? Well, I think, you know, making the friends that we did, watching Ken, uh, Ken Griffey Jr. and then his dad play together was great. Um, doing some things in marketing that had never been done in sports before, I was very, very proud of. Um, we used to kid and say, if you own the Red Sox, your marketing campaign was uh, season starts April 6th, get your tickets now. And for Seattle, it was like, look, we know you think the team sucks, but give us a chance. We're doing new fun things out here. In the book, uh, if I recall correctly, you talk about some in-stadium, maybe video and audio cues that were really ahead of their time. Yeah, we did. We we were the first ones to do video clips, um, you know, where in the bottom of the ninth inning, we, you know, we were behind and we played the John Belushi clip. Was it over when the Germans bombed Pearl Harbor? We played the Gene Hackman clip. Uh, we did all sorts of fun stuff. My favorite one was Mr. Ed, which is an old TV show that most of your listeners won't know about. But there was one clip of him running around the bases at Dodger Stadium that I, I still laugh every time I see it. We had, well, we had singles nights at the ballpark, and then we had concerts afterwards. They did a top 10 singles pickup line, uh, lines overheard at the ballpark, that was the, the, which was done unbeknownst to me as a joke. I was single at the time, and the number one top pickup line overheard at the ballpark was, hi, I'm Jeff, I own this team. <laughs> so we had all sorts of fun. We had a great group of people, brilliant people who were great at marketing, and, uh, and we introduced the product to a lot of people. Who liked it? Now, in addition to having the kid Ken Griffey Jr., Seattle was the epicenter of pop culture in a lot of ways. It really was. This was at the very beginning of that, where you had all the major groups. Um, Seattle. I always said I'd like to do anything in Seattle, but own their baseball team. It's a wonderful <laughs> town. We did it because I had been there as a kid and thought it was a great place. And and we joked and said, "Look, we just don't have enough money. We can't lose enough money to to make this work." I I got in trouble once. I said, "Look, to own the Mariners, you got to be a billionaire. Uh, to own the New York Yankees and the Dodgers, if you have a paper route, you'll be okay." But we and we couldn't sustain the losses. You talk about how the corporate community in Seattle maybe didn't step to the plate, a problem that someone who lived in Indianapolis probably found hard to believe. Yeah, I said if I had these problems in Indianapolis, I could solve them in three days um, with the corporate community and the government and the ball club. But it was just a different environment in Seattle. Team had never won. They really won the won the franchise on in a lawsuit against Major League Baseball because the first team walked out in the middle of the night. There was just never that partnership that we've I've lived you know in Indianapolis for the last forty years. 
Now, was that the Seattle Pilots of Jim Bouton in Ball Four? That is exactly right. The Pilots left. Baseball came out in the middle of the season and said, you're supposed to do this to the stadium and this to the stadium and this to the stadium. And the civic leaders just shrugged their shoulders and said, sorry, we didn't do it. So baseball was furious. Um, they didn't fix up the ballpark. The team was losing a lot of money. And in a, in a meeting, they um, they basically pulled the franchise and sent it to Milwaukee to become the Brewers. Yeah. Um, and Slade Gorton, who was the county attorney then, got a tape of baseball that was incriminating and basically said, uh, I'm going to release this tape to the public unless you give us an expansion franchise. So that is how the Mariners were born in sort of That's litigation. Insane. And you also talk about, I guess, a, a businessman in Seattle who was quite familiar with the Seahawks playing at the Kingdom, but was not aware that was also the home of the Mariners. Well, that was one of my favorite stories. Um, I was giving a speech to civic leaders in, in a group of accountants in Tacoma. And if you know the market, you know, Tacoma is about 20 miles away from Seattle. And speaking to a bunch of civic leaders, and the guy who was the president of the group was going to introduce me before the speech. And he said, you know, the thing that is so great about the Seahawks games is we can take the train up from downtown Tacoma and we get right to the park and it just, we don't have to fight the traffic on interstate five. It's great. And I said, yeah, I know. He said, I said, we're working on that. We're talking to Amtrak about doing that here for the Mariners. And he said, well, that's great. But the thing that makes it so great for the Seahawks is that the train station is at the kingdom and it lets you out right there. How far is the train station from where you play? And I said, well, it's right there. He said, no, no, you don't understand. The, the, the train station for the kingdom is right next to the kingdom. How far is the train station from your stadium? And I said, oh, my gosh, it, we play in the kingdom. And he said, I'll be damned. Who knew? And, I, and I'm thinking to myself, this team's been here for 15 or 17 or 18 years or whatever it's been. And a civic leader doesn't know where their Major League Baseball team plays. That is a marketing problem. If you were to give advice to the owner of the Indy 11, who's getting ready to, he, he hopes to embark on a project where he builds a stadium, uh, what, what would you say to him? Well, and I know Ursal, and I know, you know, I mean, the good news about soccer is it has grown nicely. The value of those franchises in Major League Soccer has grown dramatically. It still does not have a significant amount of TV revenue. And like it or not, in, in sports, TV revenue is sort of the mother of all invention. I think the economics are tough. Um, I know Ursal loves it. And he's done a wonderful job. Um, and I, you know, I'm hopeful that, that, that I love the project. I think what he's doing is great downtown. It'd be great for downtown. I think, I think the economics, the economics of sports have really been a function of we've created so many billionaires that it's the, the acquisition prices are out of all whack to economic reality. Uh, just yesterday, um, uh, so the Ishbias, who I know, paid $4 billion for the Phoenix Suns. And that's a franchise that probably doesn't make 30 or $40 million of cash flow on a good day. So that's a hundred times cash flow. Well, it's very hard to service, a, to make a business pay for itself when you're paying a hundred times cash flow. But, you know, I think Matt Ishby is worth, they say $20 billion. And so what, what the heck difference does it make? And I think that's really what's changed the face of sports in this country. Some people would say that, uh, just for the regular consumer, it's it's kind of out of... I talk about that in the book. The th three things that change sports are the, the tremendous growth of television, regionalization of cable, which is now going through another phase of downturn, 
and then the staggering amount of wealthy people we've created. I think I think when I was in baseball, you had 40 billionaires in the United States, and today we have over a thousand. And and then the the growth of of the commitment of average, of companies of wealthy people and companies to really buy up most of the decent seating and the average person gets kind of priced out of the mix. It's a very, I think it's a long-term problem, but it is where we are today. Let's take a break to hear from our sponsor. This is the IBJ podcast. Taft, today's modern law firm. With more than 625 attorneys across 11 offices, we provide solutions to the business issues facing middle market and emerging companies alike. We do this through a highly collaborative and inclusive team approach. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. Let's return to Dave Lindquist's conversation with Jeff Smullyan, author of the book, Never Ride a Roller Coaster Upside Down, The Ups, Downs, and Reinvention of an Entrepreneur. I'd like to shift to the East Coast now. If I'm right, Emma's continues to own a radio station that's an ESPN affiliate. Yes, we own uh, 98.7, which is now um, the ESPN station for New York City. And are you like a direct manager of that station? No, we, we lease it to ESPN, actually. Okay. And Good Karma actually uh, manages it for the Walt Disney Company, for ESPN. But we're just the landlord. Are you encouraged by that station's recent moves that I think I saw? They're making it more local, which I think is wise. It's tough to compete. When you're doing national stuff and other people are talking about local stuff, the local stuff usually prevails because, you know, I mean, in Indianapolis, do we want to talk about the Cleveland Browns or the, you know, or the, you know, or the Pittsburgh Steelers or the Colts. Now, maybe this year that might be a debate, but, you know, we want to talk about the Colts and the Pacers and IU and Purdue and Butler and Notre Dame. And that's the nature of sports fans. And do you have another, you just described it as a landlord uh, situation with one more station in New York City? Yeah, we have one more, uh, WLIB. We we do not lease that. We actually own that, WLIB, which is the AM that we we will probably, probably sell them both. Why well, stick around with those two? Well, the one, the lease with ESPN isn't up for a year and a half. So we sort of, we could sell it now, but we think it makes more sense to sell it when the lease ends. And the AM, we're just, we've talked to various people. We just haven't gotten a deal done yet. Well, it's such a fantastic story about how you launched and ultimately succeeded with the fan in New York. You talk in the book about you can't lead people where they don't want to go. You know, I have two chapters in the book. And I have a favorite saying forever, the line between being a genius and an idiot is very fine. And I've been on both sides. So one chapter is idiot to genius, which is WFAN. And then the next chapter is genius to idiot, which is the Seattle Mariners. But with the, with the fan, it was an idea I always had. It was in the back of my mind. I brought it up to our managers, uh, my dear friend, Steve Crane. Uh, we had a manager's meeting and it was voted down. Nobody wanted to do it or not enough people wanted to do it. So we walked out of the meeting and Steve said, what do you want to do? I said, you really can't lead where others won't follow. And the next day, Rick Cummings, who was, was then and is still now the head of all of our programming uh, and, and a lot of our strategic stuff, came in with Doyle Rose, who oversaw our radio group at the time and said, look, we're really doing well everywhere. And we know you love this idea. Um, and we still think it's stupid, but we owe you one. So let, we're going to do it. Uh, and that was the birth of sports radio in the United States. So they did it. We all did it. Uh, it was a disaster. Uh, Jim Lampley called it the Vietnam War of Emmas. <laughs> it was known affectionately as Smullyan's Folly. 
Uh, my friend John Dilly from Indiana was visiting New York once, and he said, I used to think you were a smart guy. And then I listened to that station, and I realized you're not very smart. So it, it was it was not good. And then we merged it with, with 660. We put Don Imus on the air. We put Mike and the Mad Dog on. And all of a sudden, it took off. So I went from idiot to genius in that project. And fan became, fan spawned what are today probably 750 radio stations that are all sports. I'm very proud of that. Is the Imus uh, placement in the morning, does that say something about how a morning show can set the tone for a radio station? Yeah, it really does. Uh, especially in those days, the average family got up, they, you know, the clock radio went off and they listened to whatever their favorite morning show was. And that was the greatest amount of listening. It's changed a little bit. More listening is done in cars today. Um, we don't have the portability that we had. We don't have the, you know, the clock radio by the bed that we used to have. But clearly morning radio still is the most important part of any day. I'm guessing you probably did own stations where Bob and Tom aired? Yeah, we had Bob and Tom in St. Louis, known them forever, liked them a lot. Had them, you know, it, we, we thought we almost had them hired here many, many, many years ago. They didn't happen. Uh, but we had them for St. Louis for years and years. And uh, talented guys, I think they're very talented. You probably spent some time with Sammy Hagar if you owned uh... a little bit. Yeah, Sammy Hagar was sort of a Casey guy. So yeah, we we used to Casey was one of the original rock stations, one of my favorite stations. Uh, I have a poster of the Berlin Wall right before it fell, and in giant letters, somebody had written Casey ninety five St. Louis. Um, it's a it's an iconic station. We owned it for about 35, 40 years. I came to Indianapolis in nineteen ninety eight, and uh, shortly after then. There was a radio station that brought Howard Stern to Indianapolis. Was that one of your stations? That was one of our stations, yes. That was one of our, yeah. We tried Howard Stern. It did not work. And Howard's a brilliant guy, but it was just, and, and I remember that was one of those meetings where he sit in and you say, guys, do you really want to do this? And they said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, that was one where, uh, and I've always thought Stern was brilliant. I'm not a regular listener, but he's a brilliant guy. But I remember sitting there going, boy, I don't know if this is going to work in Indianapolis. And it did not. To me, it's just a testament to how the the Teflon or bulletproof nature of Bob Cavoyan and Tom Griswold. That's exactly right. Um, they were doing things that were right on the edge, but they were the local guys. Um, and they kind of did it in a way in which it seemed to work better. But they certainly pushed the envelope for 30 years, absolutely positively. As we come on to 2023 there's a lot of excitement it's been building for a few years around podcasting uh one of the companies that emma's owns is a podcasting company but it's not maybe a conventional yeah and in the book i talk about the search for shiny new objects dave uh podcasting is one of them streaming is one of them um we've been streaming audio for 30 years um i don't know anybody who's made money i just had a just read an article this morning about Spotify, which basically said, you know, they've been spent a billion dollars on podcasting and they're not anywhere close to the black, but they're hopeful. The reason they did it is because streaming audio has never been profitable because they're paying 65 cents of every dollar to the music labels. So they said, we'll get into podcasting. We don't have to pay music licensing. Well, the problem is that's true, but you got to pay talent a lot of money. It's like anything else. There are, I just saw the statistic. There are, three and a half million podcasts. And if you and if you listen to the top 10 podcasts, it's something like you'll reach 35% of all podcast listening. And if you listen to the top 50, you'll reach something like 48%. And, and so, so with three and a half million podcasts, most of these things aren't 
you know, they're not businesses, they're hobbies. Wall Street loves it. We joked about Spotify. We said, look, we ought to take $20 million and short Spotify stock because this thing's never going to make any money. And yet it's valued at one point of, I don't know, $100 billion, whatever it was. And we said, well, with our luck, one of the Chinese companies, Tencent or Alibaba, will buy it and will be wiped out. They'll pay a ridiculous price. So you never know. But I mean, in terms of the math, uh, we never we never thought that there was much of a market for streaming. And and the problem is you've got Apple and Google and Amazon who can be in that space, and they don't have to ever have to make any money. I just saw an article about the biggest fear now of, of the video streaming, Netflix and and Paramount Plus and and even Disney Plus is that they're competing, you know, with major tech companies who just want you in their infrastructure. So Amazon, you know, doesn't care that they're going to lose probably $700 million carrying Thursday night football. Um, and I just saw Google may pay $2.5 billion to direct ticket. And based on the math, yeah, they would lose close to $2 billion. But they want you in their infrastructure and they can sell your data and they can sell your information. The same thing with Apple. Apple knows that if they're you're in their infrastructure and you're paying what forty dollars for a charging plug or cord, um, and you're continuing to do that, that is a very profitable uh, consumer relationship. Even if the underlying business, the media business, the streaming business, or the video streaming business may never make money. So if I'm getting this right, it's difficult to build an industry where your primary pursuit is a loss leader. For these giants that is exactly you are exactly right that is it and we've seen it you know we saw at one point uh, you know in music licensing for streaming audio where spotify was paying i don't know 65 cents and apple went in and supposedly paid 73 cents on the dollar for music licensing and people say why would they do that it's crazy and said because they don't care if they ever make money and if they're 73 cents it's gonna be hard for spotify to pay less than 65 cents the difference is Spotify has to survive in that. And Apple knows, again, they're going to they're gonna have you in infrastructure. They'll sell you a zillion different things. Here's a topic near and dear to my heart. It must have been so exciting to work with David Letterman at the beginning of his career. What traits did he have that kind of indicated that he would go a long way? Well, David was just offbeat and brilliant. I mean, it just it just a sense of humor. Um, I've told the story. I think my favorite one is when I came back. Uh, from lunch one day and a listener called and said, you got to get Letterman off the air. He's a communist. And I said, well, why is he a communist? And he said, well, I called in and said, there's just too many communists in Carmel. And what do you think he said? I said, I don't know. He said, well, he said, you got to give him Carmel. Um, the, street, the streets are always torn up. The football team's lousy. You can never find a decent parking space. So I think you give him Carmel and you hold the line at Nora. And <laughs> I, you know, and he and it was like, what are you going to do about that? I said, well, sir, I'm definitely going to talk to Dave. And I'm sitting there almost exploding in laughter. He did all sorts of crazy things. I could still remember the time he um, he announced that we had sold the monument downtown to Guam in exchange for a 350 foot salary stock. <laughs> uh, and people are just incensed. We love the monument. How can you do that? And Dave said, well, because downtown's going to be a lot greener with 350 foot of salary stock, all, all sorts of stuff, always off the wall. Um, and it, uh, you know, we knew um, when we, when David went to LA, we helped him a little bit and paid for some of his reports to give him a little bit of a break. And I'll never get one year. He did the, the Rose Parade. And he said, you know, it was a shame, but they, they, they ran out of roses. So they did everything in 
to, and, and, they, and they were over budget, so they did everything in pork rinds. Uh, and he said that the problem was the stench of the pork rinds, you know, cost him so much in medical bills. But he said, but on the other hand, the all pork mi- mini mouse was just beautiful. Um, so just, just stuff like that. Always brilliant. Now, something I had no idea about, I'm guessing when he was at NBC, maybe was he on the board of directors of MS? He was on the board of directors. Yeah. When we bought out our original investors, um, we had a private board before we went public, um, and David was one of the people who put some money up, uh, and he was on our board for a few years. Was he an attentive? Uh... Yeah, David was. I mean, he did. You know, it was not his highest priority, but he was. <laughs> he's pretty attentive. What do you think about how he's kind of played out his? I don't know, not third act, but you know what he's doing now. It's pretty interesting. Well, I mean, yeah, I, David. I mean, I love Dave, David's intellectual curiosity, and that he's actually, you know doing things like interviewing, you know, going going to Ukraine and interviewing President Zelensky. You know, David is a very bright guy, uh, a very inquisitive guy. And I think this is, you know, what he wants to do now. I think he, you know, he stopped the late night show because he sort of reached the top of his game. And I think now he's, you know, he's doing the Netflix stuff and it's obviously brilliant. And I think he's having fun. You were a teenager when the world discovered that uh, teenagers were a pretty good business to be in. Can I ask for just like what a snapshot of what it was like to be in Indianapolis listening to WIFE? Well, we were always, our demographic was always the the, the baby boom, the post-war babies. So we used to say demographically, we've always been the gopher going through the snake. Uh, when we were teenagers, we were massive. When we were in college, we were massive. Now we're getting ready to retire and we're massive. Um, and so, you know, and that, and that was clearly the start of top 40 radio with the rise of the baby boomers. It started with Elvis, but really reached its full fruition with the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and Motown. Um, and it was just, uh, it was a lot of fun. It, you know, every kid in Indianapolis listened to WIFE then. And as a matter of fact, the ratings are so good, they also got a lot of adults. And and I, I laugh because we had a station like that in Los Angeles, 93KHJ, that everybody I knew listened to. Um, in the movie Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it was that radio station was a soundtrack. And I was telling somebody the other day that when we put Power 106 on the air in 1986, yeah, we used to say you had the same feeling you had when you were in an intersection with... KHJ, you'd roll down your windows and you'd hear the same radio station in two or three cars. He had that with Power 106. That's when we knew right away that that was going to be one of the biggest radio stations in the United States because you heard it everywhere. So that was fun. Well, thank you so much, uh, Jeff. Uh, Your book is just filled with great stories, the people you worked with, and uh, the lessons you learned. It's uh, really enjoyable. Thanks, Dave. I'm glad glad you liked it. I've had a lot of fun and the the response to it's been incredibly gratifying. So I hope people enjoy it. Thanks again. Thanks to Dave Lindquist and Jeff Smullyan for that conversation. You can read more about Jeff's career, the book, and his recent moves at ibj.com. And just a quick note, this week, IBJ released the book, a compilation of dozens of our top 25 lists, award winners, and year-in-review stories. It's also where we revealed our newsmakers of the year. Topping the list are Purdue President Mitch Daniels and Indiana University President Pamela Witten, who worked together this year to develop a new future for the universities. That will include dismantling IUPUI as it currently exists and plotting new visions for both schools. 
subscribers can find the book with the complete list of newsmakers in their mailboxes and at ibj.com. Tune in next week when Mason King will return. Have a great week.